It's time for December birthday shout outs. I want to say a very happy birthday to Allison, Allie, Ashley, Brittany, Carolyn, CN, Eva, Monica, Natalie, Noel, Patrick, RG, Sharky, Jessica, Shashi, Suzanne, Heather, Jack, Jean, Jen, Jill, Liz, Mary, Mary, Virginia, Alyssa, Maria, and Melinda. So many birthdays this month, and I hope it doesn't get lost in all the holiday celebrating and rushing about. You deserve to celebrate your own day, aside from all the other celebration happening. So have a piece of cake for me, and happy birthday. Five members of the Brenizer-Berenston family seem to have gone missing on a shopping trip in April 1991. Investigators struggled to find the evidence they needed until a witness came forward and was offered a controversial deal in exchange for his information. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines, another Monday and another episode. Unless you listen on Patreon or Apple subscriptions, then it is a Friday. Just to let you know, for 2023 planning purposes, I do have two podcast events on the calendar. I have some floating possibilities in the spring and fall that are still in the planning stages, but two larger events that I am already committed to. One is in mid-June when I will be at CrimeCon UK. That's right, I'm flying to London to hopefully meet some of my UK and European listeners. And the second event is the True Crime Podcast Festival in Austin in August. Texas in August, because we live dangerously. I've never been to London or Austin, so I'm excited for both. So watch for ticket info for those very soon. Let's go ahead and get into this week's case. A disclaimer, this case does involve children. You know if you're in the mindset or not to listen to this. This case takes place in Sterling Township, Wisconsin, on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. In an interview with Oxygen, a law enforcement officer said it's an area with low crime. And I am sure that is true because there really aren't enough people there to be committing crimes. The population at the time this happened was around 700. On a remote property in this rural area lived the Brenizer-Berenston family. Rick Brenizer had custody of his teen son, Bruce. After having split from Bruce's mother when Bruce was just around five years old, a few years after the divorce, Rick started dating Ruth Berenston. She had two young daughters at the time they met, Heidi and Mindy, and together they had a daughter named Crystal. So, this blended family of two parents and four kids, ages 15, 10, 7, and 5, were all living in the trailer in this remote area. Rick was a hard worker. He did fencing during the spring and summer and then picked up odd jobs the rest of the year, as well as having a regular spot selling things at a local flea market. Though Rick worked hard, it was generally manual labor type stuff and jobs that didn't really pay him well. The family was just eking by, though, to their credit, they didn't have any major debts. It's been reported that they didn't have indoor plumbing or running water at the trailer and occasionally did not have electricity on. 
They also heated using fuel, but when they would run out and couldn't afford more, they would all have to stay in one room with one small space heater, which is insufficient for a northern Wisconsin winter. So this was not the easiest life in the world living out there in the cramped, cluttered, remote trailer. But 15-year-old Bruce did have some breaks from it when he would spend the weekends with his mother, who lived in a less rural area closer to the city. He liked it a lot more than at his dad's house, and he and his mother Alice talked about looking into a change of custody in the first part of 1991, but Bruce changed his mind before they ironed out any details. On Tuesday, April 23rd, 1991, Bruce called his mother Alice in the morning before he left for school. He said that his dad Rick, stepmom Ruth, and his sisters Heidi, Mindy, and Crystal had all gone to the hardware store the day before. They told him that they'd be gone a little late since they had to travel down nearly to St. Paul, Minnesota to get to the store. Bruce said he expected them home around 11 p.m., but he had gone to bed only to wake up and realize they never came home. Alice told Bruce to go ahead and go to school, but to go to her house instead of back to his dad's when he got out. She would try to get in touch with Rick in the meantime. Alice called Rick at the trailer on and off all day, but no one answered. Bruce spent the night at his mother's house, and the next day, with still no word from Rick or Ruth, Alice called the sheriff's office to report the family missing. Bruce told the sheriff's deputy the same thing he had told his mother. They had left to go to the store to pick up some lumber and never made it back. There was immediate concern that the family had had a collision or possibly went off the road along the rural streets leading to and from Sterling. This is a heavily forested area, so if they went off the road and down even a small ravine, the overgrowth, even in the early spring, could have hidden the car. Ground and helicopter searches were conducted, hoping to spot the family station wagon, but nothing was found. The police also checked in with family and friends to see if Rick or Ruth had made any comments about leaving the area. Rick would occasionally take the family with him if he was working out of town, but that would be planned in advance and didn't usually happen when the kids had school. No one thought that they were purposely staying away, certainly not having left one of their children behind with no idea what was going on. From what the police pieced together of the timeline of the family going missing, 10-year-old Heidi and 7-year-old Mindy went to school on the 22nd like normal and took the bus home. At some point, Rick deposited a check at the bank and paid a utility bill. Then they left for Maynard's Hardware, leaving Bruce home alone. Bruce told the police he was actually supposed to go with them, but he had a lot of homework to do. He and Rick had a little argument about it because Rick wanted Bruce to go with them. But eventually, Bruce convinced him he was better off at home doing his schoolwork and not cramped in the family station wagon with his little sisters. In checking the family's bank accounts, they found that Rick depositing that $300 check was the last activity 
there were no checks issued to Maynard's hardware where they were headed to, but it was possible Rick paid cash. So the police called the store to check their records and any security footage to see if Rick and Ruth had made it there that night. The police knew from the timeline about when they would have been at the store, so this wasn't a large window to check. It was pretty quickly done, and there were no purchases made by either Ruth or Rick on the 22nd. So wherever and whenever they went missing, it was before they made it to the store. Finding the car would really be the key to this investigation, so the searching continued. On April 27th, they did find one of the family's cars, but not the missing station wagon. It's unclear if they even knew this vehicle had been missing. The family had three cars. The missing station wagon they had taken to the hardware store, a red car that was still parked at the trailer, and a 1988 Hyundai. It was the Hyundai that was found abandoned on Interstate 31 near Harris, Minnesota, about an hour away from Sterling. It was unknown when this car went missing or if it was even connected to the family being missing. It seemed like that would be a pretty big coincidence for this car to be found abandoned in Minnesota and it not be connected to the family. However, it was possible it was stolen in a separate incident. Rick's family had expressed concern that the trailer had not been properly secured by the police. It was in a remote area, and anyone who looked at a newspaper or watched the news would know it was currently unlived in and vulnerable to theft. Items had seemingly gone missing from the home and not just this vehicle. This was another thing to add to the list of unknowns, but that list would get a lot shorter about three weeks after the family went missing on May 11th when the station wagon was found. A man was heading down to the river to go trout fishing when he spotted a burned-out station wagon. He was just three miles from the Brenizer family home, and of course, this was a big news story, so he immediately knew what he had found. He called the police to report it. As soon as the police arrived on the scene and confirmed that this was the family's vehicle, they sealed off the area to conduct a search, as well as looked in the car to honestly see if there were any remains. And they did see bones in the cargo area, though these were destroyed to the point that the police were not entirely sure what they were looking at. These were not intact skeletal remains. They were fragments, with some of them being large enough that they did know they were bones. Circumstantially, they were pretty sure these were human remains, but they called a forensic anthropologist in from the University of Wisconsin to confirm. And while they waited on him, they processed the rest of the scene. The car was parked in a small clearing off of what has been described as a well-hidden old logging road. Basically, if you were not from there, you would not have found this spot, and that immediately pointed to someone local. And when I say the car was burned out, it was practically a shell, but that didn't mean all of the evidence had been destroyed. 
On the outside, they could tell that the license plate to the car had been removed in an obvious attempt to obscure who owned the car. And there was what looked like a bloodstain on the rear bumper. There was a gas can near the car, as if it wasn't obvious enough that this was arson. But there was something strange they noticed. There was a footprint on the exterior of one of the doors, and it had been made after the car was burned. It meant either someone else had found this car in this unlikely location and for whatever reason didn't report it but kicked the door. Or, more probable, the arsonist had come back to the scene later. Inside the car, in the front, the dashboard had not been tampered with, and as far as they could tell, neither had the steering column. Whoever drove the car to that spot had the keys. In the back of the car, in the cargo area where the bone fragments were, was a shovel. News of the car being found made it into the papers, but the police withheld the information about the bones until they knew more. The forensic anthropologist had made it to the scene and confirmed that the remains were human. He collected them to bring them back to the lab to fully analyze. The first step was to look at the larger fragments. From that, they were able to tell that there were two adults and at least two children. There seemed to be larger bones that wouldn't have necessarily been destroyed in the car fire that were missing. After sorting the bones, they then focused on the teeth found. Those would be the best bet at identifying the remains. In 1991, DNA technology was not where it needed to be to be able to test these bones. They had been so extensively damaged by fire. But by pulling dental records and looking and comparing x-rays of the individual teeth, they quickly identified 31-year-old Ruth Berenson as one of the victims. The investigators were then able to move forward, assuming this was the entire family, and the homicide investigation was well underway, while the experts were still trying to positively identify the rest of the family's remains. Eventually, they were able to confirm the second adult was 35-year-old Rick Brenizer. They were never able to confirm the identities of the children, but they could tell that there were teeth from three separate children of three different age ranges. One was approximately five to six years old, another seven to eight years old, and the oldest was 10 to 11 years old. This was in line with the missing children, five-year-old Crystal, seven-year-old Mindy, and 10-year-old Heidi. There was another clue found with Rick's teeth aside from his identity. The odontologist found lead on his teeth, and unless he had his dental work done in the 1700s, he had no reason to have this metal in his mouth. But we all know something that does have lead, a bullet. They believed it was likely Rick was shot in the head.
Since all of the bodies were in the cargo part of the car and blood was found on the bumper, it was believed they had been killed elsewhere, probably all shot to death, then loaded into the car, and then the vehicle was set on fire. Further examination of the bones showed what looked like some tool marks, meaning there may have been mutilation or even dismemberment, but this was hard to say for sure. A few days after the car was found, the police announced that human remains had been found in it, and they believed they belonged to the family. Shortly after that, someone sprayed graffiti on a Masonic temple in St. Croix, Wisconsin, about 30 miles from where the bodies were found. It said, quote, devil worship, death by fire, end quote. People immediately connected it to the family's deaths, and since this was 1991, satanic panic took over. Many people were convinced Satanists were behind this, and the theory was pushed by the local media. Of course, the police would follow up on specific tips about this, like one tip about 15-year-old Bruce Brenizer owing money to a drug dealer, and the drug dealer happened to also be a Satanist. Maybe that drug dealer committed this crime to scare Bruce and get revenge. But this tip didn't pan out as there was no evidence of this. There was really nothing ritualistic appearing at the crime scene either, and except for the spray paint and the media doubling down on everybody's fears, there was nothing backing this up. But it still became a prominent local theory, even if it wasn't a leading police theory. Bruce seemed to be the key to information as the only surviving family member who lived in the home day in and day out. He had moved into his mom's house after his father went missing and spoke with the police multiple times. His mother was offered counseling for him, but she said he was coping well, all things considered. Bruce told the police a consistent story every time he was interviewed. His family left to go to the store and never came back. But the police wanted to look back before that day. This attack on the family did not seem random in any way. It looked targeted, so the police wanted to know from Bruce if there was any reason someone would want his dad or stepmom dead. They were hoping he'd give some insights into any enemies, arguments with friends, business deals gone south. Were there any ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends of theirs coming around? Bruce said there had been a time before the murders that he was home alone and a man came to the door looking for Rick. Bruce couldn't remember the details except that it did seem to be about money. He was under the impression that his dad owed this guy. The investigators had looked into Rick and Ruth's finances and nothing stood out. Asking around didn't help either. No one knew of any major debts Rick owed, on the books or otherwise. Another angle the investigators were looking at was, obviously, Bruce. They only had his word that his family had left for the hardware store. And if that's what they did, they hadn't made it very far as their car was found just three miles from home. So they talked to some of Bruce's friends to get a better idea of the family dynamics. And one of these friends they talked to was a girl named Katie. 
She was interviewed about a week after the car was found. Katie wasn't just a friend of Bruce's, but she was also dating Bruce's 17-year-old stepbrother, Jesse Anderson. Bruce and Jesse also attended the same high school and had grown very close after their parents married. Jesse lived with his father and Bruce's mom full-time, so the two hung out not just at school, but also on the weekends. Katie told the police that she was with both Jesse and Bruce when they were all discussing the case. Both of the boys started talking about how aggressive the police had been in questioning them. Based on what they said and how they said it, Katie walked away thinking they both knew more than they were saying. Another interview with another friend uncovered that Bruce had been allegedly taking things out of the trailer after his family went missing, but before they were found dead. He gave some stuff away, he sold other things, and then he reportedly used his father's coin collection at the arcade. Again, this was before their bodies were found. If Bruce thought they might be coming back, would he be getting rid of their items? That seems unlikely. It looked to some of Bruce's classmates like he knew his family wasn't coming back. A friend of Bruce's told the police that if anyone knew if Bruce was involved or not, it would absolutely be Jesse, who was not just his stepbrother, but also his best friend and confidant. There was no way Bruce would have not told Jesse everything he knew. So the investigator set up an interview with Jesse at his home in mid-May 1991, less than a month after the family went missing. As he was a minor, his father was present for the questioning. The investigators asked Jesse what he knew, and he first told them the same basic story Bruce had been telling this whole time. But as they pushed more and wanted more details, Jesse got visibly uncomfortable and his answers became defensive. His father, Ron, asked if he could talk to Jesse alone, so they went into another room for about 15 minutes. Jesse's father, Ron, came back and told the police that Jesse wanted to tell the truth, but they needed to talk to an attorney first. They'd reach back out after getting legal counsel. This would turn out to be a really, really good idea and well done to Ron Anderson for appropriately advocating for and protecting his son in this situation. They hired an attorney and met with the police at the station with their legal counsel present. And when Jesse had said he wanted to talk, he meant it. He sat down and handed the entire case to the police. Jesse's story started the weekend before the family went missing. Bruce was at his mom's house and hanging out with Jesse and doing something he had done many times before. He was complaining about his life at home with his dad. Bruce told Jesse he hated living out in a remote area. He hated not having modern conveniences like indoor plumbing, and he complained about the state of the trailer, which was rather cluttered. And he said he hated his father, who, according to Bruce, was overly critical of him. 
Bruce told Jesse he wanted to kill his family. And then the two of them started talking about how he should do it. Jesse said he did not think Bruce would go through with it. He thought this was some type of hypothetical revenge fantasy. Bruce had come up with the idea to say that they went missing on a shopping trip, but that would mean he would also have to kill the girls. Then he would have to drive the car out of town towards the Twin Cities to make it look like they really had gone on the shopping trip. Jesse suggested to Bruce that when he did kill them, he did it outside so he didn't make a mess in the house where the police could find it, and Bruce thought that was a pretty good idea. According to one report, Jesse gave Bruce some bullets for Bruce's hunting rifle. The next day, Monday, April 22nd, 1991, the two boys went to school and then Jesse went home to his dad's house and Bruce went back to the trailer. Around dinner time, Bruce called Jesse and said he did it. He had killed them all. Jesse didn't believe him at first, but Bruce told him he needed his help getting rid of the bodies. And Jesse told the police that Bruce told him exactly how he killed them. According to what Jesse says Bruce said, Bruce got home from school and his father, Ruth, and Crystal, the youngest, who wasn't in school yet, were out running errands. When his stepsisters Heidi and Mindy got off the bus and went inside, he tied them up together and forced them into their bedroom. Bruce told Jesse that he then heard the girls talking about how to escape and that they were going to kill Bruce. So he took them outside and shot both of them. He then went back inside to wait on his dad, Ruth, and Crystal to get home. He sat at his bedroom window with his gun, and when they arrived, Ruth noticed the window was open. Bruce said he heard Ruth complain to Rick that Bruce had left his window open. Rick walked over to the window and saw Bruce sitting there with his gun. He asked what Bruce was doing, and Bruce fired twice, hitting his father in the head and chest. At that point, Ruth ran to the phone to call for help, but Bruce cut the line. He forced her outside at gunpoint, and she took her chances to try to run. He fired, hitting her in the back of the head. Bruce then went back inside and saw his sister, Crystal, standing at the back door looking at her sister's bodies. He told her to go outside, and when she did, he shot her as well. Bruce then went inside and called Jesse, telling him he needed help moving the bodies. Jesse didn't want to go over at first, but Bruce pleaded. He told Jesse that he was a juvenile, so even if they got caught, they wouldn't get into too much trouble. So Jesse agreed. But when he got there and he saw the bodies, he threw up. It was more than he felt like he could handle, but he kept going. He helped get the bodies into the station wagon. They then used a snow shovel to clear the top layer of loose dirt where each body had been getting rid of the blood stains. Jesse refused to get into the station wagon with the bodies, so he drove the family's Hyundai behind Bruce as he drove the station wagon out to the remote area. 
Once there, Bruce pulled off the license plate and doused the car in gasoline. He lit a piece of paper on fire and threw it in the vehicle. The flames quickly engulfed the entire thing. Jesse said Bruce then threw the murder weapon into a small pond near Jesse's house. Jesse went home and tossed and turned all night. He was deeply disturbed by what had just happened and what he had participated in. The next day at school, he mentioned to Bruce that he hadn't slept at all, but Bruce said he slept like a baby because it was finally quiet at home. A few days after the murder, Jesse said Bruce decided he couldn't stick around. He was going to flee to Mexico, so he got into the family's Hyundai and made it about an hour before the car broke down. He had no choice but to abandon it on the side of the road and go home. Bruce later talked Jesse into going back to the burned-out car to see what was left. It was at some point between May 8th and May 10th. Jesse said they looked into the cargo area and saw that the bodies had been pretty thoroughly burned, but there were still some large bones left, so Bruce loaded them up into a duffel bag. According to Jesse, that even included a child's skull. They then took the duffel bag out to a burn pit in a cornfield and buried it. Jesse did not say that the bodies had been dismembered, though the anthropologist had seen signs of it. So I do wonder if it was possible maybe Bruce went out there without Jesse at some point and used the shovel to break the bones up more. Or maybe he did it while he was out there with Jesse, but Jesse either didn't see it, omitted it, or forgot about that part of what happened. The details Jesse did hand to the police were credible because he knew things that hadn't been released publicly like that the license plate had been removed. And Jesse could do more than just give accurate details. He knew where the evidence had been hidden. He was willing to lead the police to the rifle, the license plate, and the duffel bag. But remember, Jesse has his attorney with him during this, someone who was looking out for his best legal interests. What Jesse had given to the police was enough information for them to conduct a more thorough search of the trailer and the property, perhaps. They were able to locate more evidence knowing what they were looking for. But this was general evidence proving that the murders had happened at the property. It wasn't evidence that Bruce was the killer. The state needed the evidence that Jesse could bring to them. So they negotiated a controversial deal. If Jesse would provide the evidence and testify against Bruce, and no evidence showed that he was directly involved in the murders, he would be given immunity and not charged as an accessory before or after the fact, even though what he described was being an accessory before and after the fact. If they found out that Jesse had helped commit the murders, this deal was off the table. But if he did what he said he did, he was getting full immunity. Jesse took the deal because it really doesn't get better than that. Jesse's statement got the police a warrant for Bruce's mother's property. Jesse led them to where the car's plate was buried, and it was right where he said. Then he took them out to where the duffel bag was, 
and they were able to dig that up. He later took them around until he recognized the pond where the gun was tossed, and they found that using a metal detector. Using some engravings that were on the gun, they were able to link it to Bruce Brenizer. The same night as the search of his mother's property, May 18, 1991, 15-year-old Bruce Brenizer was arrested and charged with murder. Bruce's motive wasn't immediately made public, but his stepmother, Ruth's mother, Mary, told the media that there had been friction in the home. A week before the family disappeared, Ruth talked to her about taking the girls and leaving Rick. The source of the issue was Bruce, who Ruth didn't like and didn't want to live with them. Knowing Ruth didn't want Bruce there, and knowing Bruce didn't want to be there, and Alice was willing to have Bruce live with her, you have to wonder why nobody just sat down with Rick and worked it out for Bruce to go live with Alice. We will get to a possible reason a little later. News hit that a 15-year-old was in custody, and everyone was able to assume that it was Bruce Brenizer. But the police didn't immediately say how they were led to the evidence to arrest him. When the announcement eventually came that someone was given immunity in the case, there were people who actually felt vindicated. Citizens had been quoted in the papers for days saying they didn't think Bruce could have done this alone. But they were not happy to learn that the person was going to walk away without legal consequences. Not only did he not try to stop Bruce from killing his family, he didn't tell anyone beforehand. And then afterwards, he helped cover it up. Ruth's mother, Mary, said she believed Jesse was getting off too easy since her understanding of the dynamic between Jesse and Bruce put Jesse in the driver's seat, so to speak. Bruce looked up to him, and Ruth had told her mother that whatever Jesse said, Bruce would go along with. Bruce was the follower, so Mary worried that Jesse may have had more of a direct role than he was admitting to, and he was getting to walk away like nothing happened after he testified. But the deal was signed and done with by the time anyone in either family could tell the state how they felt about it. After the immunity deal, the second major decision in this case was made when a judge moved the case from juvenile court to adult court. The deciding factor here was the severity of the crime. And boy, oh boy, could we have some debates over this. The main reason to move a juvenile case to adult court doesn't really have to do with if Bruce was more or less culpable due to his age. It was solely based on the severity of the crime. The state wanted Bruce to face a longer sentence than is allowed for in the state statutes for juvenile offenders. So then we have to ask ourselves, what's the point of the juvenile court system? Is it to provide shorter sentences or is it because juveniles are less culpable than adults? And if it's because they are or should be considered less culpable than adults, why are we moving cases to adult court? My personal view is that we have some inconsistencies when it comes to juveniles in the court system. And what we very likely need is a third option to allow for appropriate sentences for teenagers while also respecting the fact that they are not fully formed adults. 
In the state of Wisconsin, currently, the youngest age someone can be tried as an adult is 10 years old. And I know that is not news to a lot of you, since very recently, a 10-year-old in Wisconsin was charged as an adult for shooting his mother to death. Many of you have probably heard about the case, so you already knew that. Currently, according to Wisconsin rules, If the defendant is under 16, their attorney can request that they be tried in juvenile court. But the burden is on the defense to prove that juvenile court is the best place for the case, not just for their client, but for the community. So this 10-year-old in question that I just referenced may still end up being tried as a juvenile, after this case moves through the system a bit more, assuming his attorney makes a persuasive case for it. But these particular laws came into effect after Bruce Brenizer's case. Back in Bruce's day, the judge decided on where it would be tried, but the defense did have the opportunity to appeal. Bruce's attorney was allowed to appeal this decision, and this delayed the trial while they did so. The argument made for moving this back to juvenile court was that Bruce was only 15 years old and he had experienced years of abuse, periodic physical abuse with regular emotional and verbal abuse. He developed an emotion disorder as a result. His attorney said that Bruce was the scapegoat in the family, getting the blame for everything. His father would make fun of him for being effeminate and overweight and would hit him with a broom handle. Rick would also manipulate the family, threatening to kill himself to get his way or promising gifts for the same reason. He would make threats specifically if there was any talk of someone leaving the family, whether it was Ruth leaving or Bruce moving in with his mother. And that's probably as close as we can get to answering the question I posed earlier. Why didn't Bruce go live with his mother if he didn't want to live with Rick and Ruth didn't want him there? From what Bruce reported, it sounded like Rick took it as a personal rejection for Bruce to want to live elsewhere, and he would threaten to kill himself if it happened. From what Bruce said, the abuse came from his father. The Ruth's treatment of him was, according to Bruce, neglectful at best, cruel at worst. Bruce said Ruth would refuse to speak to him and instead just glare at him if he tried to talk to her. He was forced to eat alone in silence rather than with the family, and that Ruth didn't bother to hide her disdain for him. Ruth's mother gave her personal insight into this to the media. She conceded that Ruth didn't like Bruce but said hate was too strong of a word. As for the glaring at him, Ruth was actually blind in one eye, which made it hard for her to focus on things. So she would have to look at something or someone longer than most people to focus and see it properly. That may be what Bruce interpreted as Ruth glaring. Bruce's attorney also argued that the juvenile system could sentence Bruce in a way that he would still serve significant time. It wasn't like he was just going to get out when he turned 18. His attorney battled hard on this appeal, but they lost. In April 1992, Bruce was officially charged with five counts of first-degree intentional homicide in adult court. 
At the time, Bruce was already serving a sentence in a juvenile detention school for some other crime. Due to privacy laws with juvenile cases, they wouldn't say what he was serving time for. The state pushed to have Bruce sent to a more secure facility after he was charged as an adult, but the judge allowed him to stay at the school. So now we are at the next major issue in this case, and that's Bruce's mental health. The trial was further delayed as the psychiatric experts needed more time to evaluate and generate their reports. And then it was delayed again when Bruce's public defenders recused themselves. The lead attorney had previously represented Jesse Anderson in an unrelated matter. While he didn't expect there to be an ethical issue when it came to trial, it looked like he might be called to the stand in regards to Jesse and his immunity agreement. Since he can't cross-examine himself, he stepped aside and a new attorney had to take over. And as the trial date was finally looming, Bruce changed his plea. In January 1993, Bruce changed his not guilty plea to not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect. Bruce also wanted to be tried for the murders of Rick and Ruth separately from the trial for the murders of Heidi, Mindy, and Crystal. It looked like he might be planning to present two different defenses. But then things changed abruptly before trial. Word of a plea deal hit the papers, but it wasn't a clear-cut plea deal, but more of a partial plea change. Bruce was going to plead guilty to two first-degree homicide charges for the murders of Rick and Ruth. For the deaths of the girls, he was still pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. Waiving a jury trial, Bruce had his case heard before a judge. The argument the defense made was that Bruce shot and killed the adults in a premeditated act first, but then he snapped with the trauma of what had happened and he was no longer legally sane at the time he shot the girls. A hurdle to this argument was Jesse's story. According to Jesse, Bruce planned to kill the girls the night before he did it. And he said Bruce told him he had shot the older two girls, Heidi and Mindy, first, and then the parents, and then little Crystal. But that's not what Bruce said happened. Bruce admitted to tying up the girls and putting them in their room. Then he waited for his father to get home and shot him through the window and then shot Ruth. It was after the parents were dead that he killed his sisters, thinking they would be better off dead than living without their mother. The reason Bruce was susceptible to snapping like this was not just the trauma of what he had just done, but the previous trauma of living in an abusive home. The defense called psychiatric experts to testify to this. The years of abuse and neglect of basic needs had led to an emotion disorder. Then Bruce killed the adults, and that trauma, combined with his already fragile mental health, led him to being, by the justice system's definition, legally insane. In Wisconsin, this means that he either lacked the capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his actions or he lacked the ability to conform his behavior to the requirements of the law. Bruce's mother, Alice, did testify on his behalf, saying that she did see bruises and scratches on Bruce 
but when she would ask about them, he'd always have a reasonable explanation. She knew Bruce didn't like living with his father, calling the trailer a pig pen and complaining that he had to sleep on the couch or the floor. In early 1991, Alice had suggested they talk to an attorney to look into a custody change. At 15, Bruce would very likely have a say in where he lived. At first, Bruce was on board with this, but then he backed out. He told Alice he was too afraid of what Rick would do to them if he moved out. He worried he would destroy Alice's property and that they would be in physical danger. Alice said it wasn't long after that that Bruce killed the family. It was the way Bruce saw to get out of the situation without putting himself or his mother at risk. This was a pretty short trial in large part because the state wasn't strongly opposing the defense. They were basically leaving it between the psychologist and the judge to determine what was best in this case. And in the end, the judge found Bruce not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect in the murders of his sisters. At sentencing, Bruce was given life with the possibility of parole for the slayings of his father and stepmother. When it comes to sentencing for the death of his sisters, he was committed to the Mendota Mental Health Institute where he would stay for life or until he was sufficiently treated and essentially paroled from there. Then he would be transferred to the state prison to serve the life sentences. The judge gave Bruce credit for the two years he had been locked up since his arrest and the time he spent in the hospital would also count towards his full sentence in the case of his father and stepmother. The judge told Bruce he initially intended to send Bruce away for the rest of his life, but after hearing from the psychologists, he felt Bruce deserved to have a light at the end of the tunnel and that it might make his time in prison more tolerable. Bruce Brenizer then spent the next 20 years in the Mendota Mental Health Institute. He was transferred to state prison in 2013. He appealed this decision, which he won in 2017, and he was sent back to the hospital. The Wisconsin Inmate Lookup has him listed as out of state, but other sources have said that he's still at Mendota. Bruce, arrested and incarcerated since the age of 15, will be eligible for parole next month in January 2023. He's currently 47 years old. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.